0: Hi, I'm Megan. I'm a speech-language pathologist in Missoula, Montana, and this is the Therapy Insights Podcast. And this is where we get to dive into what it means to be a rehabilitation clinician. And I had uh, a couple of experiences recently that led to the recording of this podcast. And it's probably one of the most favorite conversations I've had it's super inspiring to me and I think that it starts to capture the brink that we are on in healthcare and the thing that I would compare it to is like life before the internet and life after the internet and I don't think sometimes we fully realize just how different life is now and I think that that's what this concept of the learning health system is going to do for healthcare and for us as clinicians and for us as patients as well.
1: In medicine and in society we fail to recognize that just fixing problems and making them go away is not the only way we can provide help.
2: Empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling.
0: As Ram Dass said, when all is said and done, we're really just all walking each other home. One thing that happened is I was talking to another SLP about neuromuscular electrical stimulation and I am certified in vital STEM. And if you would like to email me and tell me how not effective it is, that is fine. You are welcome to do that. Um, it's something that I personally have seen be very successful with patients. I've seen people go from feeding tubes to eating regular food. Um, And, but, you know, we can sit and argue about if that is just what would have happened anyway, (laughs) and if vital stem or NMES was justified in any way. Um, but I was talking to this other SLP and she did not believe that there was a strong enough evidence base, uh, in favor of NMES for swallowing. And it kind of led me down this path of trying to understand the research, trying to comb through all the literature about it and. Uh, just kind of feeling like we just don't have enough data, we don't have enough studies that have been done in the way that maybe conclusively prove one way or the other if it is helpful or not, and just kind of a lot of ambiguity and not a lot of answers. And I thought, like, what if, <laughs> what if every speech pathologist who chose to use NMS with a patient was able to document what happened whether it worked or not and like what if our knowledge base was not based on randomized control trials but actual real data from actual real people from all over the world and that is exactly what uh, a learning health system is Um, The second thing that led me to this interview and meeting Josh Rubin and sitting down with Josh and also James Laskin is um, I sent out a poll kind of asking people to rate what they saw as the biggest challenges of our time in our field right now. And at the very, very, very top of that list was the gap between clinical research and clinical practice and this feeling that we are very siloed and, sometimes people who are doing the research aren't really, they're they're not in the world of clinical care. And so sometimes maybe they're not having the same perspective as somebody who's going to work every day and trying to do the best they can to help patients solve problems. So we have this gap. And again, that led me to the learning health system. So the conversation today, you're going to hear three voices, you're going to hear mine, and then you're also going to hear Josh Rubens and James Laskins. Josh Rubens serves as Program Officer for Learning Health System Initiatives at the University of Michigan Medical School's First in the Nation Department of Learning Health Sciences. He is also president and CEO of the learning health community and serves as executive director of the Joseph H. Cantor Family Foundation, which is the only philanthropic foundation founded by a patient with the mission of realizing the learning health system vision. He previously served as a senior policy fellow at eHealth Initiative and as a senior consultant at IBM Global Business Services, working at the intersection of health information technology, healthcare policy, consumer engagement, and public health arenas. The other voice that you're gonna hear is James Laskin. And I will try to sum up James's career, although I for sure am not capturing it all. Um, But James grew up, uh, grew up off the coast of Vancouver Island, British Columbia. He is a Canadian trained physical therapist and has been a professor of physical therapy for 24 years, maybe 25 by now, Um, and in the past 20-ish of those have been at the University of Montana. Uh, After working at a large metropolitan hospital for several years, he spent a year traveling throughout East Africa, India, Nepal, and Indonesia before taking on his PhD. Uh, after graduating from PT school, he was introduced to sport for people with physical disabilities in the Paralympic movement. And this introduction turned into over 30 years of working directly with athletes and non-athletes with physical disabilities, including over 20 years as the physical therapist, conditioning coach, and sports scientist with the Canadian men's national wheelchair basketball team. Uh, Currently, his teaching focuses on topics in applied exercise physiology, cardiopulmonary rehabilitation and health promotion and wellness. He's the founder of the New Directions Wellness Center, which is a fitness and gym program in his lab at the University of Montana. I first met James when he was filling in for another PT, PRN, at a facility that I work at, and I knew immediately when I met James that we were going to be friends. He is a global thinker, a big ideas thinker. He was awarded the Fulbright Scholarship and traveled and worked in Thailand and Laos. And he does work in Africa. And every time I talk to him, he's traveling to some other corner of the globe. And I think his background in both being a practicing clinician and a research clinician is super powerful and his perspective on how we can move forward with the learning health system is like no other. So I think it's really cool that I got to sit down with both of them and have this conversation. And just a quick acknowledgement and apology for the audio quality of this podcast. We had three different audio recording systems fail on us when we all got together online to have this conversation and we ended up having to fall back on Skype. So apologies for the quality, but I hope you'll find the conversation engaging and inspiring nonetheless.
2: Well, again, one is really, again, thank you for the opportunity to be a part of um, the therapy insights podcast and for you know, having an interest uh, I read both of your bios and in addition to doing incredible things around the world and studying around the world and working with people and just going on amazing adventures. it's just, uh, it's a, it's a real privilege to get to talk to the people that have, do, have done what you've done. So I, I hope, I hope somewhere you share with your audience, both of you, the, uh, the amazing places you've been, people you've seen and things you've made happen in the world. Uh, as, um, in terms of my, my own background, um, this does not involve uh, as much, uh, in inter- international living and studying abroad and all the great things you've done. But, um, let's see my, my own background. Um, you know, when I was in college, I thought I wanted to be maybe a psychologist or psychiatrist is one of the first careers I was thinking about. Cause I really liked, uh, talking to people and, uh, helping people. And I thought that would be an interesting thing to do. And so I can make an impact on people's lives. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of the, the friend who listens in, in, in my own circles and friend who's there for people. Um, And then I, uh, you know, did some volunteer work at at mental hospitals and volunteer work helping people, um, and working in those systems and found that, um, you know, there was something very flawed in the system that wasn't identifying the problems people were having early enough and wasn't preventing them. And insurance wasn't necessarily covering what it seemed like people really needed to get better. And I just, uh, got into wanting to do something to try to fix the, uh, Fixed the broken system that was letting too many good people, <clears throat> in, in, including people on the clinical side that wanted to make a difference. And uh, for lack of a better word, the patients themselves and their families uh, slipped through the cracks over and over and over again. And I was uh, going to college in Washington, D.C. and saw a real, a real value in maybe doing something in the policy arena and to do that. So I ended up um, pursuing a joint degree in, in law and public health. I got a, a law degree and a master's degree in public health together. Um, Initially, with the uh, public health part focusing on mental health, but then then branching out to really again looking much more at the whole health system or or, or lack of a system thereof, and, and um and what, what it's uh what it was and wasn't doing. Um, later, would go would go back to school and get a um or should continue with school and get a joint degree in uh masters in business administration, masters in public policy. Really trying to understand the economics of healthcare more, the management side of it. Um, policy side, the the sort of political science behind it, and really piece together to do something about the system, the the, the non-clinical, non-technical pieces of trying to make a difference in this very, um, very complex, uh, very complex system that is is healthcare. Um, Worked at IBM uh, for a while after I finished school. Um, Learned an awful lot about technology on the job and got this opportunity to consult for Ah, uh, federal government healthcare agencies, and and got a chance to really sit in and see how various p- pieces of, of our federal government does healthcare and what they're doing, and um, how that all works, which was an amazing opportunity. Ended up at a non nonprofit called eHealth Initiative for a while, and then, um, which I would describe them at the time as being almost a United Nations of 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 different stakeholders interested in health IT and interested in making an impact in that arena. And then I met a guy named, named Joe Cantor, and Joe is uh, going to be celebrating his 96th birthday in a couple of months, and he uh, is a truly extraordinary guy. He um, grew up um, in Alabama during the Great Depression, um, fought in World War II, and became a uh, self-made multi-multi-millionaire um, through what he described as, as overthinking things, was trying to find the smartest people in industries he didn't, knew nothing about, and asking them all the right questions. And he's, he, he was knighted for the way he, he did this on the battlefield in World War II. And, he, again, he built businesses in banking and in construction and building planned communities and eventually in, in the movie business, too, uh, doing this. And in the 1990s, when he was a, a prostate cancer patient, he wanted to do the same thing with his care. He wanted to be able to ask every patient who was kind of like him, um, you know, what treatment did you have and what was the outcome? And you know, sort of virtually do this and be able to get lots and lots of data to make a very good health decision and was, uh, shocked when he spoke to some of the best doctors in the world and learned that at the time, um, healthcare did not work that way. And set about building his foundation, the Joseph H. Kander family foundation to, uh, to change that. So, uh, met him. I did, did volunteer work for him for a while while, uh, continuing my job at the health initiative and eventually would, um, end up being offered a job by, by Joe to, uh, be the executive director of his foundation, which is a job I, uh, Took, um, God, um, I guess, not, over nine years ago, going on a decade, and I've known him for over a decade, and uh, have been um, trying to realize that that vision ever since. Um, I, I, I presently work um, in a, in a few different synergistic ways, doing that. I'm, I'm now part-time executive director of his foundation, um, with with the with the foundation really being focused on on, on building things. I'm pushing the idea on. You know, just trying to, trying to make this happen. Again, something, he, something Joe was talking about before um, internet was even a household word. But also, um, synergistically, I, I work at the University of Michigan Medical School in a department that we've created. They're called the Department of Learning Health Sciences. We think it's the only academic department at a medical school um, in, in the world, as far as we know. It's the first of its kind. It's really about the very interdisciplinary science of um, how do you um, basically turn systems that that are are dumb systems that really don't learn routinely from experience into systems where learning from every experience is is, is part of the culture. And how do you create infrastructures to do that? And that really is, uh, again, very interdisciplinary. It brings together people and technology. And I'm probably, I'm sure I'll be talking more about that, um, in a minute. And then, um, in addition to that, I'm also founding president and CEO of a very small nonprofit organization trying to make a big impact called the, uh, the learning health community, which I believe Megan is how you, uh, came to find find me and um i'll be talking more about the learning health community later but that's really seeking to build a a very multi-stakeholder grassroots movement around this whole idea um what i'll talk about is a a leaderful movement a movement not that's leaderless or rudderless like a ship but a, a movement full of lots and lots of leaders at lots of different levels making things happen
0: wow yeah, and it's so exciting, and when I saw your work, I was like, this is exactly the piece that I know that rehab clinicians are wanting. And um, I wanted to read for the listeners the mission statement of the Learning Health System so they can get a sense for what you're up to mm-hmm. in addition to what you just said. Um, Perfect and it is, the learning health system will improve the health of individuals and populations. The learning health system will accomplish this by generating information and knowledge from data captured and updated over time as an ongoing and natural byproduct of contributions by individuals, care delivery systems, public health programs, and clinical research, and sharing and disseminating what is learned in timely and actionable forms that directly enable individuals, clinicians, and public health entities to separately and make informed health decisions. The proximal goal of the learning health system is to efficiently and equitably serve the learning needs of all participants as well as the overall public good. And I was especially drawn to the list of core values that were developed, um, that were defined for the learning health community. And those are person-focused, privacy, inclusiveness, transparency, accessibility, adaptability, governance, cooperative and participatory leadership, scientific integrity, and value. So I was wondering if you could talk about how you arrived at those core values and how they've driven the direction of your work.
2: Sure. So um, a little background. We started started the work to make that happen around 2011 and and arrived at the core values in, in, in 2012 um in in you know in in 2008 2009 um the uh u.s economy was starting to uh you know really 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 go go into a recession and then they passed the uh the recovery act that did a lot of different things to try to get money reinvested in the economy and one one of them was uh, a part of it called the the high tech act the health information technology for economic and clinical health i think i got that acronym in the right order act which (laughs) among other things was really a it was really about a Came, came to well over a, a $30 billion with a B dollar investment in taking health records that were on paper and um, digitizing them. And that, you know, that, that movement towards, towards having records digitally um, cre- started to create, create the raw material for what, 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 what could be termed a learning health system, it's just a system where you're, you're taking every single experience and learning from it, getting, the, getting what's learned from it shared back, in way, do, doing it all again in ways that protect privacy and protect other things. Um, that is creating the raw material, but, but in and of itself, that, that wouldn't achieve it. Just, you know, rewarding a bunch of healthcare organizations for, for buying and using, um, using it alone does not create a system. It it, 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 creates a bunch of statuses. So how do you turn those bunch of statuses into a system? And that's, when, you know, I, I actually, I reached out to the person who, um, had been the chief scientist of the government agency in charge of that and, and, and left and took a, took a job um, as a professor at the University of Michigan, uh, Charles Friedman, who's now the chair of that department that I mentioned and, and my boss there. Um, and um, he and a bunch of other colleagues um, really got together and started trying to think through how do we take um, this idea of a learning health system, that sort of could be the pinnacle goal of all these investments in technology and all these changes that are happening. And, and and make that something that uh, could really could really become a, a reality for the for the country and for the, and for the world, frankly. And in fact, we reached out to people overseas, and this has become a, a real global phenomenon. But so so you know, modeled after sort of the, the way the United Nations began, or, or, or early developments of the internet, we looked at this idea of of things that are chaotic, that are om- almost too big to to be command and control style, but ha- sort of have to take shape as a movement and. Um, basically, realize the starting point for all that is getting lots of different stakeholders to agree on the core values. So we we held a meeting um, funded by the Cantor Family Foundation at the uh, National Press Club in Washington D.C. in 2012, where we we brought you know key stakeholders from um, folks you know representing um, health, health the, the right people in, in, inside of healthcare and in the system you know across the compass, including. Uh, key patient activists, key key health um, health IT people, people from health systems, practicing clinicians, and a whole whole bunch of other stakeholders, and um, came up together with a set of core values for a, a vision for the a vision for the future of healthcare and health. Thanks. Did you want to
0: add anything at this point, James? Feel no, free to
1: dive no, in at Oh, no, sure, point. sure. Yeah. No, I'm I'm enjoying this, Josh. Okay. It's uh, it's got my head spinning. Okay. As as you're aware, you know I'm a physical therapist. My PhD is in um, applied exercise physiology. As you were saying, I've done a lot of teaching and collaborative research um, internationally. Um, Kind of been doing this for quite a while. Um, I'm very focused on uh, chronic, um, chronic health, chronic disability. Run a fitness and wellness program for people with disability and chronic illness. So I've crossed the span between elite athletes and regular people. Um, And as a physical therapist and an applied exercise physiologist and as a human, I'm really concerned that 30% of our population has a self-described physical disability. They represent a large number of people, obviously, but um, a large portion of our healthcare costs and all our health promotion, as you well know, is is focused on keeping healthy people healthy. in, in our world, Megan and I in rehabilitation, um, uh, you know, um, uh, maintaining or prevention is almost a dirty word because we can't we can't be reimbursed for it, so we don't do it. So we have all these issues. So much of what you're talking about, I keep my head starts spinning. But okay, there's all this evidence, all this um, information out there that would help support kind of the direction we want to go in. And um, and it's so funny how things happen. But I'm consulting with the Rick Hansen Institute, which is based in Vancouver, in Canada. Um, there, they do multiple things related um, to people's spinal cord injury, um, advocacy, consumer care. But they're also um, leaders in terms of data collection on spinal cord injury um, rates, both from a, a, a initial injury all the way through chronic spinal cord injury in their life. And I'm doing a scoping review right now on um, transcutaneous um, spinal stimulation um, and looking at, and what we're looking for is where's the gaps in the literature and and the research. And here I am stuck with just looking at what people have published versus going into the data, like what you're suggesting. So again, my mind is spinning. I'm thinking, okay, we got to talk. Um, <laughs> so in terms of how it drives patient care, and I did a little search the last couple of days, just looking like in physical therapy, particularly occupational therapy, um, about w- how this is being used, the learning health system in our world. And I found, and I'm sure I didn't do an exhaustive search, but I found one article. Wow. Which is fascinating. They were looking at... Um, basically um, looking at um, a screening of children with cerebral palsy. And one of the screening tools, and it's exactly how you described it, you know, looking at standard of care, all these things we're doing. Oh, well, with children with mild CP, we really don't need to do hip x-ray every year. And so they're saving the children exposure to radiation, and they're saving $66 per child per year. And so the what you've described and what I read on your website and read in the you know, so the bigger picture of the learning health system is, I mean, it's little things, but it can make a huge difference on a single person. And so, um, yeah, you know, I'm just interested in hearing, I mean, I want to learn from you not just the, the big picture, but actually the application, because trying to think about, okay, so in, in my world, in our world, where the N is probably smaller, um, but Electronic health records are there and being used, but there's probably data that's not being collected that could be collected. And so maybe part of what we could learn from you is, well, what are the things that should be collected? Um, much of what's collected is all about billing and reimbursement. Um, that's mm-hmm. not that's great for the the uh, the payee, I guess, or payer payee, I guess, um, but not so good for um, you know evidence based practice and improving care.
2: Absolutely. So, um, I mean, you, you raised a whole bunch of points. One is, so when the, the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine started really thinking about this stuff and coming up with this, that term, um, it was first, I think around 2007 when they started, it was called the learning healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And certainly there was a, a meeting I was participating in in 20, yeah, 20, maybe 2010, give or take, uh, that was about the digital infrastructure for it. And that's, among other things, that, that was around the time they transitioned to talking about it as the learning health system, not the learning health care system. And that you know, that gets into the stuff we were, w- we were talking about. It's not just about care. It's about prevention, about keeping people healthy. It's, the, it's, not, it's not just about a sick care system. It's a, he- a health care system and eventually a health system. Um, thinking through, you know, you, you raised a very important point about you know there, there's there's knowledge out there that that's, that's hard to find that, that that i think the the challenge we have is this is the rate at which knowledge is being generated and the kinds of sources it's generated from is is, is just increasing over and over again I, I I read there's one article about the the future of medical education um, that, that pointed to the fact that you know in in the 1950s or something you know, biomedical knowledge doubled every fifty years there's but by, by by some metrics, but in 2020, it's going to be doubling every 73 days. And <laughs> no. how, how do you actually get you know the, the, this knowledge? It, the, there's no possible way anymore that someone can go to um, medical school or or other kinds of clinical training, nursing school, med school, and, and keep up with everything they need to know just by reading a few journal articles, as, as, as you know, in, in the limited free time they have because they they have so little time anyway because they have so, they're trying to spend the time with patients and so many other things. So getting the knowledge where it needs to go, when it needs to go, there is a whole other piece of a learning health system as well. Uh, managing the knowledge, making sure it's up to date, you know, making sure that you're getting the right knowledge to the right person at the right time. You know, almost like a, like a pill. A prescription, a prescription drug has to be given to the right person in the right dose, in the right form, in a way that works for them. So too does knowledge, and that, that becomes critical. Um, so, It's really it's thinking along the lines of these learning loops where you you... you you take something that's happening in the world and you collect it as data, you, t- you take the data and you analyze it, you turn it into knowledge, you take the knowledge and you get it to the people that have to make a good decision and, and put, it, put it in their hands in ways that they can use it to make a decision. And then you see if it worked or not and, you start, and you, you start another cycle. You make this cultural commitment to keep it. And it's, uh, it's not just a one-time thing. That's, that's why it has to all be sort of underpinned with infrastructure. It can happen easily almost invisibly. And at some point it just becomes part of how things are done and you don't think twice about it.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that's such the interesting thing is like right now this seems like such a crazy idea to a lot of people, but then once it happens, it's going to be like, how did we ever survive without it? And Mm -hmm. like James is unique because he actually works with patients. So he's in both worlds, like he's in the clinical world and he's in the research world, but it happens so often is like, researchers live in their own bubble and like active clinicians live in their own bubble and it's like you got to stay in your own lane and we can't work together even though we Mm -hmm. should and like this is the perfect solution for you to do that. So, But it almost seems
1: like and you can correct me if I'm wrong but one way in which this could be used is like we do these whatever the research is done and we come up with our conclusions and this Mm -hmm. is how it should be used or, you know, any treatment, uh, medical, you know, uh, surgical intervention, rehabilitation intervention, a a, a pharmacological agent, but but the sample size is always limited even in large samples and it seems like Mm -hmm. over time you start collecting this information and this is kind of what I'm thinking about. with this spinal cord injury stimulation with this scoping review is what's not there is they're measuring say motor recovery, but then you see these little tidbits of, oh, well it affected sexual function or oh, you know, I found that like these sort of, um, and not always subjective because it could be objectively measured, but it wasn't the main point. And it seems like if you were following in data collected well we could take something that's come from the literature it could be a very large study but then start learning like well actually when we start really applying it to a large sample size it you know it's almost like a post hoc check on what's been done and, and it may be um, positive like oh we could use it for this or for that or it could be um concerns that you were so um subtle didn't come out even in a large sample size study and then we could learn across the population. That's an amazing way of thinking about it. Is it. Yeah, you, you take something that's
2: been learned, but then you actually put it into action. And you know what? In the, in the process of really realizing it and mobilizing it and putting it into action, you're going to learn something else that's new. Like, again, there's all kinds of effects that might be too mm-hmm. small to, to see through the cracks, but suddenly you start to see see, see what's happening. So I think that's, you know...
1: Or, use and again, that's why never in, or or a use for something that we never, like an unintended consequence, always thought of something negative, but could be very positive as well, um, that mm-hmm. just wasn't thought of.
2: Absolutely. You never, you never know what the other benefits could be. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so you quote, in one of your papers, you quote Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saying, of all the forms of inequality, uh, injustice in health is the most shocking and inhuman. And... Like that got me on this trail of thought about Henrietta Lacks, who was the uh, woman whose cancer cells are the source of the HeLa cell line, and that's the first immortalized human cell line and one of the most widely used cell lines in medical research. And she was a black woman who lived in Virginia, and in January of 1951, she went to Johns Hopkins, the only hospital in the area that treated black patients, because uh, she felt that's not in her womb Um, and her tumor was biopsied and it was found that her cells were unique and that they reproduced at a really high rate so they could be kept alive long enough to allow a more in-depth examination and to be used for scientific studies. So her cells are still in existence today as the basis for a great many medical research studies and she had died later that year in 1951 and she was buried in an unmarked grave and her obituary went unpublished until the New York Times published one in 2018. And what struck me, and I think what strikes a lot of people about her case is, like, she never even knew this was happening. <laughs> and, like, she yeah. never consented to have her cells used in any way, but they just, they were, and they are still used. And so, I guess, like, one, one phrase that you use is a science of empowerment. Or patient empowerment? So, what do you think it would look like if patients around the world could choose to have their data used as part of collective research? Wow
2: well, I mean, I mean, the Henrietta it raises so many different ethical issues. it's so many different uh, justice issues. Um, it's uh, you know social justice it, it's 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 quite quite an amazing story, an amazing case, and I think it's you know, Showing up more and more in popular culture, which is really uh, in- interesting. So, um, I think goodness. I mean, look. I, I think there's sort of a principle I've heard in the patient empower- empowerment community is about nothing about me without me. And I think that's a you know one one of many pe- people have, have 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 some basic rights to know and to have control over what what happens with their data. And you know, I also I think people have have a right to have have some kind of access to the knowledge produced if it was, if it was made using their data. So I think in, in, in general, that's an important thing. You, um, you know, you asked about, about empowerment. So one is, you know, a, a term patient empowerment's around all the time. I, I, I haven't heard that many good definitions of empowerment, but, uh, um, someone in the patient community who goes by the name ePatient Dave, um, who's w- worth looking up and watching his Ted Talk and videos on YouTube. He's really a, a brilliant speaker on all kinds of issues on this case. And he's just an, an amazing guy. Um, he, t- he found a, a definition of empowerment used by the World Bank, and it's, it's about increasing the capacity of individuals and groups to make choices and then take these choices and transform them into desired actions and outcomes, and that is you know, really how you have to think about empowerment. And that goes to the, the core – so you, 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 know, you, you can't make – if you're not informed what's going on, you can't possibly make a choice about it. So I th- you know, it's quite possible, I don't you know, obviously I don't know Henry Lacks, quite possible if you, if you told Henrietta Alex, you know, that you you'd have this opportunity to t- to take what you've been through and make a difference in the lives of others by sharing, you know, she she may have may have consented and may have just wanted to say, Okay, but I just want to know how it's being used and what impact it's there's a lot of people that would do that. And it's uh but the the important thing is to I think you know, give give people the right. And again, there's a there's a lot of talk about data and you know, who owns data. There's a, 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 a you know, there's amazing thinking about this. Um and, folks, there's a woman named Dr. Deborah Peel who works in this organization called Patient Privacy Rights who really um, looks very critically at the, at the importance of privacy and, 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 and all the ways that right now, frankly, isn't, isn't respected in the ways it needs to be. And um, was I, where was I going with this? I think um, the flip side of that, there's a, there's a lot of talk about, about data. I think a theme in learning how some there's way too much talk about data and not enough talk about knowledge. And I think, you know, what happens with the knowledge that's generated from, from lots of people's experience, from lots of people's, you know, data points that represent treatments that people have paid for or, or insurance that they've contributed to is paid for, and data points that represent human suffering. You know, it's a therapy you've been through, the, the, uh, you know, a disease you've been through that might have been very painful, might have cost you something, you know, physically or emotionally. And you have some basic right to the knowledge that's generated from that to come back and at a minimum help you and your family or at least know it exists and know how to find it, not not have that knowledge published in a in a journal somewhere that's behind a table well, you couldn't even get to and maybe wouldn't be able to understand anyway or, or have it in an actionable way if you could. So Therapy Insights podcast is supported by Therapy Fix. Every month, a team of licensed and practicing clinicians work together across the country to comb through the latest research and create engaging, expertly designed handouts, interventions, and resources.
0: Hi, my name is Megan, and I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm a speech therapist, and I subscribe to Therapy Fix because of the great resources and the evidence-based information. My favorite resource was the handout on the free water protocol. It has all the information on a nice single sheet and is very clear for patients to understand. I love Therapy Fix.
2: Learn more and subscribe at therapyinsights.com.
1: But how do you, um, again, this is kind of a practical question, but um, so when we are thinking of, I mean, we're talking always about the masses, but now, like, again, your focus is so much about how do we empower the individual? And we know full well um, in many areas, whether it's um, health and safety issues of seat belts and bike helmets or using meth or now vaping, um, <laughs> that, um, just That's because it. people have the information doesn't mean that yeah. they use it. Um, of So how does, I was kind of, when I was reading more about the learning healthcare system, like I see in the big picture how it might affect what Megan and I might do and and educate our clinical practice and how we might make our decisions and certainly um, what we would share and, and work with our clients. But is there a way, I was just trying to think this through, like, is there a way that this style of information could be better, not better used, but... I guess we just, I don't know, I guess we can't change human nature either. <laughs> but, well, but, I mean, but how could it be used to help us educate yeah. people better? It's very good at turning what I'm saying into something <laughs> that actually makes sense. So, I like what well, she no, I mean, interprets just, like, for me.
0: Like, obviously, we want, we want people to make the best decisions. Mm-hmm. But then... One thing I think about a lot is the right of the person to make their own decision even if we think it's the wrong decision. Yes. So yeah. And especially in like skilled nursing settings, which is the setting that I'm the most familiar with. Like we we as caregivers and providers and clinicians, like we come up with this plan. They will be on thickened liquids so they don't get aspiration pneumonia, or they will be wheelchair bound so they don't fall and we have all this concern for their safety, but their number one concern is quality of life and they want to drink regular water or they want to get up and walk around and if they fall, they fall, but they'd rather walk than not. And like, how do we respect the decisions that they want to make? And like, can this whole type of research and learning and collaboration feed into that idea that it's not just that the clinician is right and the patient is wrong, or we have the information and they don't have the information but like everybody has a choice, and everybody has an experience,
2: and everybody has something to offer. The collective perspective. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I mean I, I have a, few, a few points you raised. One is, yep, yeah, obviously, the patients and people have, you know, have have the right to make the decisions they want to make. And but I, I think also that get, this gets down to the idea that getting information to pe- to people, and this is and this is any people in the system, this includes doctors and uh, other clinicians and nurses and professionals that having information alone isn't always enough to change behavior, and that you really have to think how you get the information to people in ways that help them to do it. So that also comes back to the systems themselves. If there's a best practice, make making it happen may not be as simple as just uh, you know emailing everyone a, a long journal article about what the new best practices. And that's that's you know part of what we did at Michigan is we is we put together this department that has you know all kinds of social scientists, including those that are specialists. I so specialize in integration and implementation sciences and really know how, how to communicate things in ways that it's understandable and how to set up systems in ways that makes it more likely. So you can, you know, you can know you're supposed to do, you, 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 can, know, you can know you're supposed to wash your hands, but if there isn't, isn't, isn't the place to wash them, then it might not happen. But so if you, you know, re- restructure things, things might be more likely or less likely to happen that are, that are good things. And that, so that, that applies to the, clin- the clinical, clinical side of the settings,
1: too. With that metaphor, though, on the other hand, you can say you can have the places to you know, the, the knowledge about washing your hands, you can have the place to wash your hands, and then you have healthcare staff that wear gloves and they wear them from patient to patient because they're worried about protecting themselves. Not the whole point of hand washing and with clinicians is to protect the patient. we're fine, so it's always this this, this odd disconnect that um, mm-hmm. I find interesting and then and, and find it interesting on how to. Alter behavior, or or just to provide that information and make good choices.
0: So okay, so then that brings up another question that's rattling around in my brain all the time: is like who gets to decide what's right and who gets to decide the truth? Mm-hmm. And like I sometimes I feel like evidence-based practice, like that phrase, is used as a weapon. <laughs>
1: like yeah. Yes.
0: Just quote articles and they they cite people that agree with them but there's 50 other people that disagree Mm -hmm. with them and then we get into this power struggle of who's right and who's Mm -hmm. wrong and so in 2008 oh sorry go ahead
2: oh no and and that you know it's not always one size fits all either so that that doesn't get into tailoring you know precision medicine personalized medicine which is you know tailoring things to to the patient's own Mm -hmm. characteristics and there's I think there's also tailoring to the you know the kinds of communities that that are served and the, and the health system themselves may have you know what, what works at a huge hospital may not be what's right at a small a small town clinic and vice versa and it may not be what's what's best for the for the for the for the clinical staff or or what's best for the patients.
1: And going I mean, on with best and evidence based practice, the, mm-hmm. one of the things that really came to my mind is, and I know you're well aware of this as is Megan, is what is published and how much is not published because it didn't work or whatever, you know, for lots of reasons, so all the issues we have of only publishing positive results. And I think one of the, to me, one of the maybe the the greatest strengths of this learning healthcare system is that's eliminated, because now what's happening is we have this evidence base, we're starting to do this therapy um, or another therapy or conveying therapies or whatever. And then when we start looking at all of the data, we'll go like, "Oh, oh, well, that was never mentioned in this evidence base." And actually, you know, maybe there's information that will come out of this that, if we were publishing non-positive results, um, that um, we would have known that. I think there's information to be found that is currently lost or deliberately not published.
2: I think, I, I think, I think there's information to be found. That- and I think that there's ways I, – I, I, I think that the culture behind learning health, you, you figure things out quicker. I mean, I, I think about the, uh, the opioid crisis, and I just – you know, the, the thing that always comes to me is how do we structure things in a way that the, the next thing of that, of that magnitude gets identified quicker
1: and solved quicker?
2: Well, vaping. Um,
1: I mean, just look at – yeah,
2: va- 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 la- yeah, vaping, exactly. That's in the last right couple
1: weeks, we've gone from, oh, it's probably not so bad, to, oh, there's seven kids are dead. And I mean, my students I teach cardiopulmonary rehabilitation, and they're bringing it up in class right now, going like, you know, we're talking about tobacco smoke, and they're saying, well, what about vaping? And they're bringing up on their darn laptops and tablets in class, like, well, this just came up from the CDC today. And so, <laughs> yeah, which is fabulous. It's just fabulous. And I wonder if using this sort of learning healthcare system method of collecting data, yeah. we'd know about. I mean, even though most of us suspected that vaping probably wasn't the panacea and the perfect way to have fun um, and 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 to get your nicotine or CBD or whatever it is that you want or just look cool as a teenager, that there are consequences. And I bet you we would find we would know more and find out faster. I agree with you.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, so so yeah, you, you, I don't have numbers in front of me. Years ago, a guy Dr. Larry Norton at Stone Kettering looked at the. Uh, the four years or so it took us to figure out that VIAX was hurting people and take it off the market. And he, and he started to show that if, you'd, you know, if you had a network wiring, you know, I, I don't remember the numbers, but, you know, if, you, if, you, if you'd wired, you know, t- 10 million people together and, and, and we're, looking at, we're looking, you know, doing a, sort of active post-market safety surveillance on the data, you might have figured it out in six months. And, you know, and if you had the whole country wired together, it might have been six weeks or something. I forgot the exact numbers, but something like that. But, it, you know, sharing lots of data and, and looking at it. You take things that take years to figure out, and, and you get to the truth, or at least, you, or at least you get a signal that there might be a problem. Then it takes, you know, people to intervene to look at it and think about it critically. And I'm so there's arguments on both on, on every side of it, but at least, you, at least you can try. At least you have a, have a hope of trying to find something.
0: Right, right. And in speech pathology in particular, there is just a complete. <laughs> lack of evidence base. But again, like that phrase is used so widely to defend what how people want to do their treatments. And I was looking at the the report that the American Speech Language Hearing Association compiled and they had a list of about twelve hundred people doing research in speech pathology and audiology. Okay. Seven hundred and fifty of those were in speech pathology. had a doctoral degree, and of those 69%, about half of their time was devoted to research and half of their time devoted to teaching. Um, They, only about half of them had access to appropriate funding sources. 23% reported they were able to produce a randomized controlled clinical study, and only 43% reported they were able to draw participants from healthcare settings. So like when you start looking at these numbers, you realize that there's only about 274 people with SLP doctoral degrees spending half their time conducting studies to provide all of the evidence base for all of the hundreds of interventions (laughs) for speech pathology from pediatrics to geriatrics. And they don't have enough money and they don't have enough time. And not only that, but major fields of study like dysphagia or swallowing disorders are just completely missing from this report. And that's arguably, you know, some people spend 100% of their time working with people with swallowing disorders, and they're not even listed in this report of research. So I think there's so many interventions that are super controversial, and there's either no evidence base or just enough evidence base to get into an argument about it.
1: Um, So
0: is the learning health system a replacement for traditional research?
2: Is it a repli- it's not a replacement um i would say you know maybe it's 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 a it's a compliment it's an augmentation it's uh one one is i think it's going to help you know, so you say it's you know two hundred and you know, yes sort of you know uh, uh, under three hundred under three hundred people spending half their time <laughs> There's 150 full-time employees responsible for all the research in this field, basically, if I understood what you were saying correctly, right. with, with limited funding and all, all kinds of other problems. I mean, it, to me, it's, it's a way of turning that on its head and really a- augmenting it, because now imagine if learning is possible from the experience of every single patient, you know, every every single person going through this and uh, who, who wants to be a part of it now has an opportunity to contribute something. And that, to me, that, 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 that changes the game. Right. Um,
0: Absolutely. That's, yeah, like so one of I'm, the biggest controversial topics right now is neuromuscular electrical stimulation for swallowing, and yeah. you can find people on both sides, and you can find evidence on both sides. And like, what if we had a way of tracking actual patient data and outcomes, um, not only from like a physiological standpoint, but from a quality of life standpoint, and like actually asking what their experience is. Like, we would have such a better leg to stand on and a better conversation, I think. Yeah. Um, So James and I are scheming about how we can do this for PTs, OTs, and SLPs. And I know, like, one thing I read that you wrote is, like, there's not going to be one giant magical system to make this happen. It's going to be a lot of smaller platforms. Yeah, it happened, and collectively, it's the idea of it that's going to grow rather than one major platform. So, how, like, what's the current conversation about how to cohesively collect and process data?
2: I I mean, I think that there's one. one I guess you you, you you can look at models. Of networks that have done this, there's the the, the Patient Centered Outcomes Research Institute, of PCORI, has funded a bunch of different sort of big health systems to to collect data on, on, on different diseases and share it with each other around the, these these sort of pilots on um, what are called clin- clinical data research networks, CDRNs, and patient power research networks, which are a lot of registries, PPRNs. And mm-hmm. look at examples of those. There are examples of, of of different best practices, you know, in the in the state of Michigan, where there's, um, where, where there's one, um, you know, one, one, one significant payer is in you know, a blue cross blue shield in the state. And they, they've been, they've been able to drive these different collaborative quality improvement initiatives, um, where you have, you know, doctors and, um, clinicians and and health across the state sharing data to, to look, to look at different things. And that, you know, there, there are examples of this, um, you know, across the country. And, and in fact, around the world. You have, um, in Switzerland, in Switzerland, they're the, sort to the first country that that, that that's their health system as a learning health system. They're going to create the Swiss learning health system. Um, you know, and in and, and you know, this is happening in, in, in on just about every continent and t- taking you know real shape. Um, yeah, we're, we're, you know how how to go forward and really th- think about you know how to go about collecting this data and how to uh, you know how to start. A, Solve these problems. It's um, it's challenging right now, but it's, it's, it's. I think it's it's about it's about looking the the folks that have start, started to do it and seeing what some of the best practices are. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it's exciting because it's not like there's a right or a wrong way. There's lots of different ways mm-hmm. to explore. So
2: we're excited to see what lot, you know. okay. yeah, lots of different ways. Yeah, I, I do think you know a common theme in this has to be has to be infrastructure. That like what you don't want to have happen is everyone. Everyone, everyone reinvents the wheel entirely in their own space, and there's no economies of scale or scope so that some of these things can't take off. And you know, you know, funding is challenging. There's a, there's a lot of funding for projects to look at certain things. There's not as much funding for infrastructure to to, to keep doing things.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it creates and challenges.
1: And it seems like again, for us and maybe for other professions as well. Um, I mean, like I, I said earlier, data is being collected that is for reimbursement purposes, and, and that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and some and even the outcomes that are collected are kind of based on reimbursement purposes and so yeah. i think there needs to be some forum both from the patient perspective quality of life is key um but also from the clinician perspective and then from the academic researcher perspective is so what are the what is the data that needs to be collected you know you can't overwhelmed and collect everything so that's foolish but like what are the key yeah. things and i think you mentioned in some of the stuff i read is so so we need the questions first, like it needs to be a priori. It seems like some of it needs to be, let's collect some of this, like, what is the information that we want? What's the best data that we can collect in a humane, ethical, efficient way, and, and then follow it up. So it's really, like Megan said, like, is it, it really is, it's almost, it's another form of research, basically. And it could be done in the same way that we would be looking at an intervention, a specific intervention. It's kind of looking yeah. at more Global care with lots of questions that could be answered over yeah. time, and those answers and I, and I think, again, over time too. Sorry.
2: Yeah, and, and and I think that the starting points for figuring these kind of things out are always or, always sort of multi-stakeholder, multidisciplinary. So you you mm-hmm. bring together to figure out ways to be, again, you, Yeah, you, you you bring together the, the expert clinicians in the, in the area. You bring together clinicians in you know, other health areas that that are affected by it. You bring together the pay themselves, you start to understand what, what matters to each of them, what each of them and, then the re- and the researchers, mm-hmm. and what matters to each, and what, to, what, what do they need to know to do their job, and you start to build standards around this. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and then, and then that's the other thing is collecting the collect- 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 collect stuff on different sites or at different times and standardize enough ways that you can at least compare or at least have enough metadata about what you're collecting that you know.
1: I'm thinking in yeah. the setting that Megan and I offer, well, I work a little bit and she works all the time. If you were to ask the clients what they cared about, it would be like, can we just get better food? Like, can I, <laughs> I can, <laughs> not, not just as an SLP, but I'm thinking of the most common complaint I hear when I'm doing work in the same facility <laughs> that Megan works in. is there's like, you know, like, yeah, this is all fine, like, blah, blah, blah. But actually, like, you know, can I get someone to help me go to the bathroom when I need to go? And <laughs> can breakfast, you know, can I just have a, like, Bacon or whatever—I don't know—but right. but but, it, yeah. but again, that's really important to know from the client's perspective. Was like
2: what's important to their quality of life, Frank? Right. Like, yeah, it's I mean, getting to the, you know, the, whole, the whole quadruple aim of you know, but, yeah, but, you know, better 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 care experiences, better health, you know, better, mm-hmm. you know, be, be, better, better patient satisfaction, better you know lower costs and, and and better and, and satisfaction of the, of the clinicians and the, and the care teams too. I think I think all, all that you know that's why it, all that has to get looked at together. You can't, you, you, can't just look, you can't just look at costs in isolation or, or vice versa.
0: Well, I have loved this conversation. I could easily talk about this all day, yeah. of both of you. Um, okay. I have two more questions and then I'll let you go. So okay. first question being like, where can people go to learn more information about this? Are there any upcoming conferences that you would recommend or resources for clinicians?
2: And to, you, know, to learn, you, know, um, you can learn more about the learning health community on our website, lear- learninghealth.org. Yeah, no, I, I, th- I, mean, I think. Look, I think, I think you, you sort of, you sort of need people, people that are advocates of learning health approach approaches to go to all these things and, and, right. and try to get different, different kinds of stakeholders to see themselves in it. And you know, sort of, you know, I, I, I frame it a two questions: what, 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 can, what, can, what, can, what can you do to help help make a learning health system happen? What can learning health systems do to solve problems? for you, things that are frustrating you, things that you wish could be happening better. How can a learning system make, make a difference to you and how can you make a difference to a learning health system? Because
0: yep. Yep. we all have something that we could, that we want to make better, for sure. Um, and then the last question is, what is your favorite book?
2: Oh, favorite book, okay.
0: Um, and it could be anything. It doesn't see, I, have to be any, any kind of, anything related to what we're talking about. Fiction book is.
1: Book, but I hope me okay. The fiction book is the great uh, Gatsby,
2: and, and um, not, but I was inspired by, by the tipping point in a lot of uh, Malcolm Gladwell's work.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much. James has stepped out of the room, but he says thank you as well. And this has been such a okay. fantastic conversation, and I am super inspired and I'm excited to share this with. Uh, all the listeners and get them inspired with me. This has been a conversation with Josh Rubin and James Laskin. And if you would like to learn more, I think the best place to start is learninghealth.org. And I just want to thank Josh and James for taking the time to sit down and explore these super exciting ideas with me. This podcast is produced by Megan Berg at Therapy Insights where we have a group of collaborative clinicians that are constantly developing new resources and our goal is to help clinicians like you save time and change lives and if you would like to see what we're up to you can check us out at therapyinsights.com and a brief acknowledgement of the audio segments at the beginning of this podcast The first clip is from Matua Gawande, author of Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End, from a talk he gave at Google, which is available on YouTube. The second clip is from Brene Brown from a clip she produced on vulnerability. And the third one is from Anne Lamott's TED Talk titled 12 Truths I Learned from Life and Writing. Thanks for listening.